Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. No John Morant, no problem for the Grizzlies as they respond in a big way in their game two matchup against the Los Angeles Lakers. 103-93 to win, but they weren't the only team that responded without one of their stars last night in the NBA playoffs. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and company. I'm... Your big, bald, and beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Of course, I'm joined inside the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo. We got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking Saints preparing for the NFL Draft, which is just a week away. We're going to be discussing where do the New Orleans Pelicans go from here. We're also going to be touching on high school baseball playoffs and so much more, including the Houston Astros getting a much-needed win, a series win, if you will, over the Toronto Blue Jays. So that's all on tap today, and of course, we love to hear from you. Game hotline's always open, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. But we're going to start off today's show talking about the NBA playoffs. A big response, right? No John Morant has the hand injury. We knew this series was going to be a tough one for the Grizzlies anyway. They don't have their star player. They don't have their best player. The Los Angeles Lakers have LeBron James. They have Anthony Davis, and it didn't matter. Grizzlies came out, punched the Lakers in the mouth, right off the bat in the first quarter, and that set the tone for the rest of the way as they pick up a 10-point win at home in Game 2 of their series. Now it's tied up as they head to Los Angeles. That is a great response. And here's the thing. The Grizzlies didn't learn until about an hour before tip last night that they weren't going to have their two-time All-Star point guard. So they were planning preparing to have him go and they find out an hour before tip that Ja can't go and what did they do they just go out there and punch the Lakers right in the mouth this is going to be a six game seven game series you know the old rule of thumb is look early in a playoff series you want to do what you want to get a split if you're the road team you want to steal one game that's the whole thing Because then you feel like you're still in control of the series because you feel like you can win when you get home. So the Lakers did do that by taking game one. But credit the Grizzlies, a young team that's still fighting 
how to win, still learning how to win in these playoffs. And they got the job done. Xavier Tillman scored a career-high 22 points, had 13 rebounds in the 103-93 win. Morant tested the right hand. He originally hurt on April 7th in a win at Milwaukee and aggravated driving to the basket in the opening loss to the Lakers. He had more exams on the hand before being declared inactive and watched from the bench with his hand bandaged. So there's no guarantee that he'll be good to go for games three and four in Los Angeles. You think he will be, but there's no guarantee. And Grizzlies head coach Jenkins said afterwards, quote, hopefully over the next couple of days, there's more significant improvement, end quote, when in regards to Jaws hand injury. The Grizzlies led by as many as 20 in this game. Many as 20. Absolutely did a phenomenal job. And not only did the Grizzlies not have John Morant, they still don't have center Steven Adams, nor key reserve player Brandon Clark because of injuries. And the NBA's Defensive Player of the Year, Jaron Jackson Jr., well, he showed that he can do more. He also chipped in 18 points. Desmond Bain had 17. So a total team effort for the Grizz as they get the job done. Now, can they sustain this? Can they win a series against the Lakers without John Morant? Eh, I don't know. They got a shot if Anthony Davis is a no-show again. The man played 38 minutes and scored 13 points. Xavier Tillman goes for 22-13 and 13 for Memphis. AD was 4-14 from the field. Ugh. You got to be better. You got That's the weird thing about AD, right? He is a perennial all-star. He is a great player. But there are these moments. He'll have these games, even when they were in the bubble, if you remember, and they won the title, even that season and even during that playoff run, there are moments in games where Anthony Davis just disappears. A guy that big, that naturally gifted, that much of a veteran, defensive player, rebounder, scorer. He's a great player. But there are games where he just goes, and last night was one of those games. 4-14, only had eight rebounds, only had 13 points. LeBron, 28 points on 12 of 23 shooting. He had 12 rebounds. But they didn't get nothing really from Austin Reeves, who has been a huge spark for them. He had 12 points. That's it. So, Grizzlies even up the series with a 103-93 to win. But that wasn't the only team without their star that was able to have a gut check type of win. 
How about the Bucks? No Giannis. Remember, he had the contusion suffered in the game one loss to the Miami Heat. Heat, your number eight seed, was able to steal a game. Playoff Jimmy Butler the whole nine yards. Well, Bucks started off strong in this game. They separated themselves with a dominant second quarter of basketball. And then even with Miami trying, trying to rally in the second half, outscoring Milwaukee 37-20 to in the fourth quarter, they still lost by 16 points. <laughs> so a pretty dominant performance by the Bucks. Without Giannis because of the contusion, Milwaukee's being proactive here. But you look at the box score for Milwaukee. This is why they're such a dangerous team. This is why they're a world championship contending team. No Giannis, MVP candidate, former league MVP, could be considered the best player in the league. And all five of their starters step up and score in double figures. Portis, Middleton, Lopez, Holiday, Allen. Lopez with 25, Holiday with 24. So all five give him double-digit scoring. Drew had himself 11 assists. He got everyone involved. And then they got 22 points off the bench and another 17 off the bench by two different players. Team basketball. Your best player goes out, and Milwaukee's like, oh, no problem. We got this. And they dominated Miami. 138 to 122. So now that series is even. Once again, if you're the road team, you're the underdog, you want to try to steal a game, both Miami and Los Angeles did that in their series. That's great. But both of those teams lost the second game facing teams that were without their best player. That doesn't bode well. Like, we felt like Milwaukee was going to win this series anyway. And maybe Miami gets another game here when the series goes back to Miami, but the Bucs are so deep. They're so talented. They're so disciplined. Giannis, we expect to come back maybe during the series. So you like Milwaukee's chances to win this series. The Memphis-Los Angeles series... That's a little bit more complex because you don't know if Jaws coming back or not. And can Memphis keep it up and play the way that they did last night? Because AD's not going to play that way every game. Now, he may have another game in the series where he plays that way. <laughs> As we've talked about, he'll have a game where he just disappears. But big statement wins last night for both the Grizzlies and the Bucks, evening up their series one game apiece. Credit the Minnesota Timberwolves. They showed a little bit more fight last night compared to their game one performance where you're just like, ooh, you're a team that doesn't think they deserve to be in the playoffs. 
but it wasn't enough. Denver's just too good. Murray goes off for 40 points, and the Nuggets win easily 122 to 113. They're now up to nothing in that series. I think Lakers, Grizzlies goes maybe six games at least. I think Milwaukee takes care of the Heat probably in five. And I think Denver sweeps Minnesota. That's what it feels like to me. But once again, this is the playoffs. Anything can happen. We'll see if the Grizzlies can do something without John Morant. Because if he couldn't go tonight, or couldn't go last night rather, we'll see if he'll be ready in L.A. Tonight's lineup, 76ers, Nets, Phillies up two games to none in that playoff series. That feels like that's going to be a sweep. Kings, Warriors, and Suns, Clippers. I have a question, Dawson Iserlow, producer extraordinaire. You're a very intelligent young man. We lean on you for your wisdom, and we lean on you for your savviness. Kings, Warriors, tipping off at 9 o'clock. Suns Clippers tips off at 9.30. I don't have an answer for you there. I am appreciative that you're not having one of them not tip until 11 o'clock. But two buzzed about series that a lot of people are going to want to watch, the NBA has going on at the same time. It, It doesn't make any sense. Okay. I was just making sure. I was hoping you could uh, shine some light there on why that's happening because that seems like a scheduling faux pas, if you will. One will be on TNT. That's the Kings Warriors. We'll see if Sacramento can take a three games to none lead over the defending champs who will be without Draymond Green. And then Suns Clippers is tied up one game apiece as the series shifts back, shifts over rather to Los Angeles. And then 76ers are in Brooklyn, which I don't think really matters. NBA playoffs. Let's go. Kings Warriors is intriguing. So Suns Clippers. I guess I'll have to be toggling back and forth late tonight between the two games. Not impossible. I have the abilities to press buttons on my remote. I'm just saying. NBA going. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll have them go on the same time. It's fine. It's not as if a lot of the same fans would want to watch both games. (laughs) Oh, we got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, got some great news about a former Raging Cajun star, Michael Jefferson, yesterday. We'll share that with you. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
Yesterday, we received some amazing news about former Louisiana Raging Cajun star wide receiver and NFL draft prospect Michael Jefferson. If you remember, the standout wideout was involved in a car accident, a severe car accident on Easter weekend. We got an update yesterday from his attorney. Jefferson's attorney, Brad Sohn, said in a statement, quote, a drunk driver tragically hit my client, Michael Jefferson, on Easter night. Michael would not have made it this far without being a fighter and remains in good spirits under the circumstances. He still has optimism that even as he continues to undergo a grueling rehab, he can have an outstanding NFL career. We believe that optimism is well-founded and hope a team still will select this terrific young man and great football player. Finally, we'd also like to take this opportunity to remind everyone that in today's age of Uber and Lyft, there's absolutely no reason to drive impaired, end quote. He was released from the hospital yesterday morning, and that was after he was hit by a drunk driver on Easter night in Mobile, Alabama. Jefferson caught 51 passes for 810 yards and seven touchdowns for the Raging Cajuns this past season. He had 29 total touchdowns in his five seasons, three at Alabama State, and then two with the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. He was projected to be selected around the fifth or sixth round of next week's NFL draft. So first things first, Dawson, this is great news that he was released from the hospital. The rehab process will be long and grueling, but great news that the young man is healthy enough to be able to be discharged, and now he be- can begin the rehab process moving forward. It sounds like he's going to be out for the for the entire season, so you know it, it's now unlikely he gets drafted. But you do hope maybe a team uh, sees the vision, sees the future, and still takes a shot on him and. Um, yeah, just just tough situation all around. Now, we've seen guys get drafted coming off severe injuries. We've seen guys even get drafted that are dealing with cancer. That's happened before. Okay? And we've seen guys in those type of situations also be signed as undrafted rookie free agents and teams go, "Okay, we're not going to take a flyer on you as a drafted player, but we're going to sign you to uh as an undrafted rookie free agent." have you on the roster, let you go through your process, and then when you come back, we'll see if you can make the roster, right? That's probably what's going to happen for Michael. Because teams aren't going to know, yes, he's been released from the hospital, but is he going to be the same player he was pre-accident? You're not going to know that until he goes through the rehab process, and then he starts working out again, football working out because right now the focus for Michael Jefferson is going to just rehabbing his entire body from a near fatal car accident so that's a different type of rehab I don't believe he gets drafted which is immensely disappointing for him and his family because He was rising up draft boards. He impressed people at the NFL Combine. He went through the pre-draft process, and he looked like he was going to be 
the first Raging Cajun drafted this year. Maybe even sneak into the fourth round, definitely be a fifth round pick. That's probably now not going to happen, so his dream of playing in the NFL is going to have to be put on hold. That said, that said, he's alive. So it's a tough spot for the young man. I wouldn't be surprised to see someone try to stash him on their practice squad or sign him as an undrafted rookie free agent and just say, okay, this doesn't going to cost us. This doesn't cost us a lot to do this. And we'll sign him as an undrafted free agent, and he'll just be a member of our practice squad, and we just know that he won't be utilized this year, but that's okay. So we'll see what happens for Michael Jefferson. But great news for him that he was released from the hospital in his native mobile yesterday. That being said... He's probably now not going to get drafted. That leaves Andre Jones and Eric Garrar as the two best possibilities for the Cajuns to have guys drafted. I think Eric has a better chance, and this isn't a knock on Andre. Andre did have the personal workout where he improved on some things, and NFL scouts came for that. You always need pass rushers. So I I think he's going to get drafted, but Eric gives you something that Andre doesn't and gives you something that teams covet. He can play special teams. He can also play special teams. That versatility, we've seen it, gives guys an opportunity to be drafted. That's why Raymond Calais was drafted. wasn't because he was drafted because of his pure running back ability. He was drafted because he could also return kicks something Eric can do as well so I I believe both will be drafted I think both are probably going to be sixth to seventh round picks or they may fall out and be undrafted rookie free agents it all really depends on what teams do late but if you're a versatile player you usually get drafted late that's why I think Eric probably has the better shot of getting drafted above Andre. But I wouldn't be surprised if Andre gets drafted before him because you're always looking for defensive line help. You're always looking for pass rushers. What says you, D'Lo? I think Andre is a better shot just because the measurables, you can't teach those. That's something he has that Garrett doesn't. And I think a team will take a, take a chance on a guy who is still relatively new to the position. He's raw. I, I think NFL NFL coaches love that, though. They see that and they go, I can mold this guy into the player I want him to be. So I think Andre goes in the sixth, seventh round. I think Garrett's an undrafted free agent, but um, but we will see. That's why they uh, that's why they have So the why don't you think, Eric, even though the Cajuns typically have guys that are special teamers that get drafted? Um, I think he should, and I would take him if I was. But I just don't think that – Teams are going to see how undersized he is and not think there's a place for him on defense. And uh, I think they're going to think they can get him in free agency. I think the other thing, too, is like there's not a lot of difference between the seventh round of the draft and undrafted free agents. No, and I will also say this. If I'm Eric Guerra, you know what I want? I want to be undrafted. Because if it comes down to being a seventh-round draft pick, and being an undrafted rookie free agent, I want to be the undrafted rookie free agent, and this is the reason why. Because I can pick where I can go. 
you have more power as the player to go, okay, I have three opportunities. I've, I, I, I've seen this firsthand over the years covering college stars and looking at the process behind the scenes of guys that have been drafted late and guys that have gone as undrafted rookie free agents. And they'll tell you that once he gets to the seventh round, even sometimes late in the sixth, they would prefer to just go, okay, we're to this point, I'd rather not be drafted because my agent's going to get me a deal and I get to pick between three or four teams, sometimes even more, where I'm going to go sign my undrafted rookie free agent deal. And that way I can look at their roster and go, this is my best opportunity to make the team. That gives you a little bit more power. Not a lot, but it does give you more power. And a lot of players will tell you they would prefer if they're going to be a seventh round draft pick or undrafted rookie free agent, they'll take being an undrafted rookie free agent in that in that case. So I think both guys are, are gonna gonna have an opportunity. So we'll see. That leads us to our poll question of the day. D'Lo, you're the mastermind behind it yet again. It's why you have the name extraordinaire. Tell the people what it is on this glorious Thursday morning here on RP3 and Company. Yeah, so it might have snuck up on me if I wasn't a producer for Kevin Foote because he stresses about the draft more than he stresses about like being alive on Earth, so... I knew it was coming up, but I know a lot of people maybe not even realize, and it's one week from today is when the NFL draft starts. So I want to know uh, what's your what's your feeling about the draft? Are you very excited? Let's go! Well, you know it's draft time. You locked Let's go! in. Mock drafts, everything rolling. Um, is it one of those situations where you're like, wow, I didn't even realize it was coming up, but that's cool. I like the draft. Um, then the third option is one. You know, I I don't really care all that much to be honest with you. And then the fourth option is you're in baseball mode. You're locked in because I understand that sometimes I'm in football mode and other sports are starting or this or that, and I'm kind of like struggling to get locked in. That happens to me at the beginning of college basketball season. Is I'm always like I'm still locked into football right now. So those are the four choices. We'd like to hear from the people. You know, we'd love to hear from the people. So go vote on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids, right? I don't need Dawson to be poll question policeman today, right? You don't want that. You already got enough on your plate, D'Lo. So let's keep it respectful, okay? And then you can also give us a call on the game hotline, of course, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. When we come back here on RP3 and Company, we'll talk more about the draft. Mock draft 3.0 for the Saints. We've done them. They're up. We're going to share them with you. And then Dawson and I are going to discuss ours and how just straight up outlandish they truly are because it's always fun doing mocks. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The NFL draft is a week from tonight. First round action live from Kansas City. Did you see they expect the largest crowd 
ever for the draft, D'Lo. Like, it, it is massive what they're doing in downtown Kansas. The draft, I'm old enough to remember the draft not being on television. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when the draft was just in a hotel, like, meeting room. Like, when Elway and Marino were taken that year and Jim Kelly were taken the year. And it was done in, like, you know, tables set up in a hotel. Yeah, I, I don't... And and now it's this massive event where it left Radio City Music Hall, which I always thought was a cool, great venue for it because you get the Jets fans being idiots. And now it's a traveling circus. And, and now it's this huge event that people are... Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are reserving, you know, tickets for. It's yeah, crazy to I me. Don't, I don't really get it. Like, at Radio City Music Hall, I think it would have been a cool thing to have gone to once or twice. Like, you're in the, you know, you're in the the intimate sort of environment with it. And I'm sure they're doing entertainment, you know, and commercial breaks and stuff for you. And I'm sure that's still happening now. But, like, I don't know. Like the And you see how far these people are from the stage now in these venues. Like, you're standing way in the back. And, like. I always see them. You, you got, know what I think of? I think of that Dave Chappelle skit on The Chappelle Show where he's constantly just backstage and he's just the music just keeps going as he's walking out to the stage, and he just keeps going the hype music. Or I think of this as Spinal Tap, where they get lost underneath the stage trying to get to the stage. That's what it. That's what it's like. It takes forever for them to get to stage. And then like you're gonna you're gonna be there for like three to four hours, and then like you're gonna have that thirteen seconds where you're like, yeah, there's our guy, we got him, let's go. And then you wait for three hours and you watch other guys get picked. Like I. They're expecting twenty nine out of the or thirty one out of the thirty two events that are going to take place that night don't involve your team. So like, it's not like a I don't know. I just don't think I would really want to go to that. Seventeen prospects will be in attendance for the draft, according to a list the NFL released last week. <laughs> it's going to be the largest draft event ever in NFL history. Joe Barker, NFL Senior Vice President of the Global Event, told the Kansas uh, told the Kansas City, Missouri City Council Thursday that the stage outside Union Station there in Kansas City is going to be 380 feet wide and 175 feet deep. That's larger than a football field for the draft. So the actual stage... Yeah, I don't know. Outside of Union Station, because at first I thought, okay, they're going to have it like inside Union Station or whatever. So apparently they're they're building the stage around Union Station. So Union Station is going to be in the background, which is a cool visual. I get it. But the stage is going to be the size of a football field? Yeah, I don't know. Like if it was here, you know, I guess not Lafayette. If it was in New Orleans, let's say, and it was easily, easily accessible for me to get there, I might go and check it out for a bit. But like I can't pick which clearly people are like planning trips to this event like a lot of them i just can't really picture like getting all that fired up to like let's go go out there and then like let's go to the draft i don't know it will also use the most led screens than any previous draft Ten thousand square feet of led panels and screens are going to be used for the draft. You think they could lend me like a piece of that at the end to upgrade the man cave since I'm not eligible to win the man cave makeover? You're not eligible, but 10,000 square feet of LED panels, 
<coughs> a stage the size of a football field surrounding Union Station. They're going to use Union Station as the backdrop. Just an immense undertaking. This is what it's became. This is what it's become, rather. And when it first happened, by the way, they expect organizers expect anywhere between 300,000 to 350,000 visitors from across the country traveling to Kansas City for the NFL draft weekend. That's just crazy. Like, I just don't... I, Dude, nothing 300,000 people! Like, I don't... I, I don't know, and I, str- I had this kind of conversation with Foote because he loves the draft, and I mean, I don't dislike it, but it's like... Nothing happened. Do people know if that? It was, if it was nothing New- happened. If it was in New Orleans, would you go? Like I said, I, I might check it out. I don't th- if I I don't think I would plan my day around it. Like I might if if I was down, you know, and I wanted to take a trip to the city, maybe go have dinner and something. Oh, the draft's going on. Maybe walk around, see what's going on. A lot on. of people would go. I don't think I would go in front of the stage and stand there four hours and no, wait. No, like, I would go cover it as like a member of a media or something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe know. so. I don't, I don't know if I would go as a fan, but three. A quarter of a million folks are going to be going to Kansas City. That's it's, what they anticipate. You know what that's like to me? Like, to try to make a comparison to, like, music festivals, concerts, because I know that's also something, you know, people travel to and stuff. If if they had a big event to announce the lineup, and you stood there, and then and they were like, and then it's going to be, you know, Bon Jovi. And everybody was like, yeah, Bon Jovi's playing. And then you're like, yeah, but they're not playing right now. They're playing in three months. That is a very up-to-date reference. Good job. Well, you know, (laughs) Bon Jovi's still making their rounds. They are still. But you see my point? It's like, they're like, oh, it's going to be Bon Jovi. Their leadoff was going to be Bon Jovi. And everybody's like, yeah. And they're like, well, they're going to be playing. When they first left Radio City Music Hall in 2015, they went to Chicago. By the way, Jameis Winston was the number one overall pick. He was the first guy there for that draft. They held it in Chicago back-to-back years. And when they did it the first year, I told people, I go, guys, it's never going to go back now. It's going to be a traveling circus. This is going to be an event because the NFL dominates 24-7, 365. And this is going to now become an event like the Super Bowl for them. And sure enough, look what it's grown into. It's been in Chicago two years, Philly, AT&T Stadium in Arlington. Then it was in Nashville, main stage on Lower Broadway, and that was kind of ridiculous to watch on television, by the way. Then 2020, of course, we had the pandemic. That's when Roger Goodell was in his weirdly decorated basement. It felt like a hostage video. It just did. It just did. Then it was in Cleveland at the harbor. Then it was in Vegas, right? Now it's at Union Station this year. It's going to be in Detroit next year. This is what it is now. And I know we could do this with a lot of aspects of sports, so I don't like to do it too much. But, like, could you think, if you're explaining this to the non-sports fan, like how ridiculous they think it sounds, you you, you say... I've had to. (laughs) Yeah, so so what's going on? Oh, well, we're going to the the NFL draft. Oh, so so what happens like that? Well, you know, I'm a huge Saints fan, so it's going to be, oh, so the Saints are playing? Well, no, they're not playing... But but we're gonna find out who's on the team next. Year. Oh, okay. So you, you, you know what they do? So they're make it's all their picks, you, you, right? You know what they do? They 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 get there. Okay. So then they go. So they go. Oh, so they're they're making a bunch of picks. Well, well, no, they're making one pick. Well, 
So then that oh well that guy's you're gonna they're gonna pick him and then he's gonna play you're gonna see him but well no he's gonna play in six months but we know we get we know we know we have him now so then we get all so so you're going but, to see but it's that's only non sports people because now no, all I sports know. people are are, are are lock in step with this right right so so that's the thing and once again it just proves to you how dominant a Goliath the NFL is as a brand that a quarter of a million people are going to go to Kansas City this weekend, or next weekend, a week from today, for a draft. For the draft. Think about that. Let that wash over you for a second. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll talk a little bit about our mock drafts 2.0. Dawson and I did this week for the New Orleans Saints. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 came to the station this morning to do only two things. Kick some ass and drink some beer. Looks like we're almost out of beer. Well, it's kind of early for the latter, isn't it? Maybe. Probably. Maybe just a root beer. Or some flavored water. Back to more kick-ass sports talk with RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The NFL draft where more than a quarter of a million people will descend on Kansas City to stand on a stage the size of a football field with 10,000 LED screens around them. It's a week from today, by the way. I'm still wrapping my brain around how much this has become a absolute circus. But that means it's still mock draft season. And we've done a couple of these already here at the game for the Saints. 3.0 is up now for yours truly, D'Lo, James Mesh, and Matt Miguez. I went bold. That's my tease. I went bold because I initiated a trade. Oh, yeah. I traded up. I I channeled my inner Mickey Loomis D-Lo, and I said, you know what? I'm not staying pat at 29. Jacksonville Jaguars, I want your pick at 24. I need to move five spots up to get a pass rusher, and it only cost me a third-round pick. Swap first, throw in a third. We swap sevens. I made the deal done, but I wasn't done because then in the draft simulator, the Green Bay Packers came to me in the second round. They're like, hey, we want pick number 40, RP3. We want to go from 45 to 40. We're going to give you a fourth round draft pick to make it happen. I took it, and I still got the pass rusher I wanted in the first round. I still got the interior offensive lineman that I've covered in every single one of my mock drafts. In round number two, by the way. Yeah, I don't mess with artificial intelligence, fake GMs trading with me, so I stuck with the picks I had. But I went in a completely different direction with this draft than I have with the previous two. So I I wanted to see kind of how it would look from a different perspective, from a different kind of mindset. And I, again, Did you draft a position that you shouldn't have drafted in the first round? I don't know. We'll find out. But the thing is that, look. Oh, you did, didn't you? I can already tell. Yeah, it was a kicker. He's so good, though. <laughs> uh, no, but it was uh, it was important to me to see it from a different perspective. And I think that's, again, like my, my, my whole point recently has been that the Saints can 
pretty much go any direction they want outside of quarterback in the first round. Like I really, there's I not agree. a you know probably rule out kicker and punter as well. And and past that, you pretty much can go anywhere. So. You know, I, I felt like it was going to be interesting to see. I've done the defensive tackle, the edge rusher route in the first round. Wanted to see it from a different perspective. Went with a player who I happen to think could be uh, a player that could be within the top three at his position within Did maybe two go, years. But see, you went. I, 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 can I make a guess on where you went? Because I don't. Can I yes. make a guess? You went with a pass catcher. Perhaps. I mean, I don't know. You'll have to watch the video. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It, it takes a while for those guys to typically develop. I just, I just, I'm just saying. I just, woo. But I like your, I like your decision to go from a different perspective. Like I've never once initiated a trade or accepted a trade, so I wanted to do something a little bit different too with our mock draft 3.0. So those are up. We'll share those links to our mock drafts on our Twitter. Go check that out. Have some fun with it. Do your own mock draft as well. Hour one in the books. Hour number two coming up right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome back to RP3 and Company 703 on this Thursday morning. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parch III, better known as RP3. <clears throat> Joining me inside the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette, of course, is the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlow. Got a great show still on tap for you. Coming up half an hour from right now, Eric Sherman. He's wrote a book about Fernando Mania, which is really phenomenal. Great conversation with Eric. That's coming up half an hour from right now. We'll also this hour tackle the Houston Astros getting a series win over the Toronto Blue Jays. That's on tap as well. But first things first, D'Lo. It's Thursday. What happened to the week? I felt like I woke up today and it felt like a Monday. And no, it's actually Thursday. That's not what it felt like for me. I feel like this week's been going on for two years. Wow. Wow. So spending time with me. Working on this collaboration of RP3 and company is a drag for you, is what you're saying. That's what you just unveiled. Uh, no, there were some the extenuating circumstances that led to the week being long. It's okay, though. You're just the highlight of my day every morning from 6 to 9. I'm trying not to take it personal. <laughs> Zerk Classic, though, is this weekend. Yes. Now, you told me a little bit off the air, by the way, our guy D'Lo will be at the Zurich Classic this week, and make sure to check out his reports on social media as well at as 1037thegame.com and 1041thegame.com. I went last year, enjoyed myself, even though it feels like I'm driving out to go to an episode of Swamp People to get to the actual it's golf not course. That far. 
it seemed time out, time out, time out, time out. <laughs> You're allowed to sit there and say that this week has felt like it's taken on two years. I'm not allowed to say that it felt like it took forever to get out to the golf it's, course. No, it's fine for you to say that. I'm just letting the people know. I'm, I, you know, born and raised in New Orleans. It's, it's not in the city, but it doesn't take as well, long. Well, it's not. Well, it's not in New Orleans at all. Right, right. It's in Avondale. There it we does go. Not take, there we go. Since if, we're correcting one another, right? If you're familiar, I, I, I didn't say okay. If you're familiar <laughs> with the area and how to get there, like it doesn't really take that long because yeah, no, I used but, to drive but there every morning. Time out, time out, time out. Let, let, let's time out there. See, you, you see what he just did there? See, that's what happens when you get when you have a master's degree. Yeah, you, you, you manipulate things there. If you're familiar with it, but if you've never been to the golf course ever. Making your way down from Lafayette, Louisiana, Upper Lafayette, if you will, and moseying down to a place you've never been before, it seems like it takes a long time, wouldn't it? I didn't. I didn't doubt your personal experience. I was simply there letting the people know. There we go. But honestly, there we go. if you'd have taken ninety, it's right off ninety, and then it's it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't know the way you took. I, I didn't know you at that point. This man can't stop insulting me today. I'm not. What do you mean? Mm, it's been a great run. It's been a great run. It's been a great couple of months. Yeah. It's been a great couple of months, Dawson. <laughs> it still took forever. That's fine. It seemed no, like I, it I, took forever I for me. I believe you. Okay. So, you know what? I'm just whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> no, go. I, what I never. I literally just wanted to give a clarification. He just he just wanted to let you know that RP3 is wrong. That it really doesn't take that long. That my experience is irrelevant, and that you should listen to D'Lo, the producer extraordinaire, son of Iceman, aka Two Degrees. No, look, I'll tell you that, like, if you, sh- if 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 people from out of town just showed up in the city and were like, "Who ready for the golf tournament? All right, where do we go?" And then they're like, "Oh, you're like not close." Yeah, they'd be they'd be definitely like in for because there are no golf courses in the city of New Orleans itself, which is weird to me. Yeah. How's that? Well, I mean, it's just not a whole lot of space, you know. And yeah, but you would think they would have an old city course, right? Well, there's City Park, but and so it's in New Orleans. But I'm talking about like the what people know of New Orleans, the French Quarter yes, and yes. Bourbon Street and stuff. You know, obviously there's levels to New Orleans. There's the East Bank, the West Bank, and those are suburbs of it. But there are there are golf course, golf courses within you know the city limits, so to speak, but not anything in the touristy area of the city. I got you. I got you. Um. Now, I went last year for the first time there to TPC, Louisiana. Nice course. I found the environment to be very good. Like I, I was, I was sub. I, I don't mean this as an insult. I was surprised by the crowds and how into it they were. Now. There's a couple of like party stages, what I would call like party decks, I guess. Yeah. Which I've covered some PGA Tour events before, and I hadn't seen that before. And I was like, that's a lot of party space up there. And the crowds were good, man. Like, I, I was surprised. the You felt a little bit of the electricity, especially on the final day, that Sunday, the final round. And people were really into it. And I, I liked that because... I'd always heard mixed reactions when it came to the Zurich Classic over the years by some people. Some people in golf really liked it. Some people were like, eh, 
Like that, that it, they could do without it. It, it didn't didn't move the needle for them but the people that were there the crowd was really good man i, I was yeah. very surprised by how kind of into it they were there's a couple of things that really work against the zurich and so they went to a team event about five years ago and if you'll remember kind of the reason they kind of did that i think there was a few but you know the course had become fairly easy for the pros um and and that's a thing like when TPC Louisiana was built, just to give you a brief history about it, it was one of the longer courses. It was built to be a really long, challenging course, um, and that was the case when it was first built. But we've seen this huge rise in, you know, obviously swing technology and golf club technology, and just players understanding how it how to gain more distance and stuff. And so what happened was, as tour players got so much more distance in a hurry, the course really didn't have much left and they had already built out on all the land that they had in Avondale so the course became pretty where winning scores were getting to around the 20 under par area so I think they tried to go with this team event to kind of spice that up and the first couple of years the results were great like you had the major major guys playing in this tournament Um, whereas at the end the field had kind of fallen off they're now you know, I think the initial kind of awe of the team event has kind of expired a little bit, and you're not quite seeing those big names. And the other big issue they're having now is the Masters is two weeks before. That's always been the case. But now you have an elevated new one of the PGA Tour's new elevated events that took place, took place last week in the RBC Heritage. So you've got a majority of, like, major top-level players right now that are ready for a week off and are that not aren't, playing. That aren't going to be playing. So. Right. That's something that they're dealing with and battling with. There's still some big names, and I mentioned it in the two-minute drill, but uh, Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantlay, both two very popular players. Patrick Cantlay's been in the news a lot recently for his pace of play or lack thereof, <laughs> but those guys are both up there. Max Homa's going to be playing, and he's a big name. He was featured in the Netflix um, documentary. Yeah, he'll be with Colin Morikawa, who is another you know pretty big name. Like There's some guys playing that you'll certainly recognize, like a lot of, of Matt of Fitzpatrick guys. And is his playing brother. with his brother. Um, and that's cool. So you've got some guys there, but you're not going to have, you know, Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy or Scotty Scheffler. But you weren't so. going to really have those guys. Like I, I right? Like I remember <clears throat> Phil playing in it the year after the first year back post Katrina, and that was a huge deal because he typically didn't play in the event. But a lot of guys felt, hey, we need to go down there for Louisiana and do this. But I mean, I'm look. I, I get what you're saying. You're not going to get Rory, but Shoffley and Cantley are your defending champs. Colin Morikawa is a great golfer. You get Sam Burns. Yep, he's in the field, it. and he finished. I want to say his runner-up last year, if I remember right. He's paired up with Billy Horschel, Fitzpatrick, who just won his second PGA Tour tournament. He's on there. Zach Johnson with Steve Stricker, a couple older names. Luke Donald is on there. So yeah. Look, you don't get the top flight guys because of the whole elevated thing. Um, but it's still a fun event. Very now, fun. you also have familiarity with the course in yes. another way. Would you care to share? Uh, yeah, I did spend a summer uh, on the grounds of TPC Louisiana, so that was fun. Got to play the course a lot. Um, enjoyed that, but... Um, did never I so I never was there during tournament time or when they were prepping it for tournament time, and from what I know, the course is immaculate right now. Um, and so, like in the summertime, especially with how hot it is in, in oh, New yeah. Orleans, they do a lot of maintenance on it to try and keep it going. So the course was still very nice when I was there, but um, 
Yeah, I'm excited to go back out there because I haven't, I've never, I've been to the Zurich Classic, but it's been quite a few years, so I haven't seen it. Once I, like now that I know, like the funny thing too is I now know, like I could tell you every hole just from memory because of how many, how long I was out there. Um, but, and I haven't been back since I knew the course during Zurich time. So I'm excited to see that because it's a transformation. And like, you know, when I was there, we, we, there was a lot of storage areas where it was like, oh yeah, that only gets used during Zurich time. Like there's a lot right. of stuff that goes into play. Um, you wouldn't recognize it if you went for a reg on a regular day as opposed to when the Zurich is and the, you know, the grandstands are up and the camera stands are up and everything like that. Um, like the tee boxes, the TP, the, the, the PGA tour tee boxes aren't even actually there during the year. Um, and so like, if you want to play them, you can, you can request to be allowed to play them. And usually if there's nothing going on, no work going on, they'll let you play the PGA tour tee boxes. But usually like if you walk up to the second hole, for instance, and you see where the back tees are for the, you know, the players club tees or whatever. If you look back like 40 yards behind you, you'll see a t- just an empty tee box. That's where the PGA Tour tee boxes are. So it's funny too. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. Completely different. So when you're playing it on a normal day and you're and, and that's the other thing too, you could play the the course is already extremely difficult for the average golfer. Then you look and you go, "Oh yeah, the the, the PGA Tour guys tee back 60 yards behind where you're actually teeing off." But again, that kind of still makes it shows so you so tough as someone who's played the course. Now obviously you haven't played in the Zurich Classic, but you're familiar oh, with the course. You didn't know I played in the Zurich Classic? Yeah, no, yeah. I haven't played in the Zurich Classic. But you've played the course right. itself numerous times. Why is it such a challenge? It's just so long. But again, that's why for the PGA Tour guys that hit the ball 330 yards these days, like it's not as difficult as many other courses on the tour. But like okay. for the average golfer, I mean, you've got a couple of, even from the middle tees, you've got a couple 440, 450-yard par fours where like you've got to drive the ball well and then you're hitting your second shot with water in play. So I think just the length of it is really tough. There's a lot of well-placed bunkers as well. Um, and, you know, a couple of unique little holes. They actually had a tree fall down that was kind of uh, in the center of one of the holes, and they've been doing some work. I think they've replaced it, but, like, a lot of different things like that. So, again, yeah, for the average golfer, it's it's probably the toughest course that I've played. And that just shows you how amazing the PGA Tour players are because they still go and tear it up. So. Uh, the team event, it's interesting, too. You're going to see, again, you're seeing something you wouldn't see. I personally wish it would still be a solo event just because it's the only real PGA Tour event that I get to go to with any regularity. Um, but it's cool. It's a novelty. You don't see this. in Again, like they advertise it, it's the only two-man team event on the tour. You're going to see a mixture of alternate shot and best ball, depending on the day, as long as they're doing it the way that they did it last year, which I think that format's remained. Um, so alternate shot, like that's, that's really, that's tough. Like that's the toughest form of golf. It's true alternate shot where your teammate's going to hit your drive and then you're going to have to hit the approach shot. So, you know, a lot of times, especially with these professional golfers, they're hitting tee shots to suit their game, right? They know what they're good at, but now you have this situation where it's got to be communication between the two. Hey, I really want this club in. So how about you hit three wood off the tee so that I don't have to have a full wedge shot in, you know, like different conversations like that. Um, and again, if you're out there, that's the other cool thing about golf tournaments that people haven't been, and I'm not trying to like advertise for the tournament for any reason, but like, if you go out there, you get to hear some of those conversations. Like if you're, you're walking around, you're close enough, you'll hear those guys talking to each other, talking their way through a shot, having their caddies influence. And then you get to walk up and see guys do things that you'll never do. And that's always cool as well. John Daly and David Duvall are teamed up as a pair. They're playing in this. Yes. I did not know that. <laughs> I now have more reason to be excited. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So, Zerg Classic tees off starting today down at the TPC Louisiana. Easy to get to if you're familiar with it. That's what D'Lo said. Just don't take any directions from yours truly. 
Um, or you'll be mocked live on the air, and your feelings will be hurt, and you'll be devastated for the rest of the day, and you'll need to go take a nap on the veranda. Bye-bye, right? There we go. <laughs> it is a cool event. If you get the chance to go, you should go. Not only because it's the only PGA Tour event that comes to the state of Louisiana, now it's the only PGA Tour or Corn Ferry Tour event because the Chittimacho Louisiana right. Open got taken away and so did the Lake Charles Championship. So we, we also I just want to throw the last thing out there. A very large alligator named Tripod, who only has three legs. That's why he's named Tripod. Uh, roams the area. Um, I've had a couple of bunker encounters on 18 specifically. The Gators will get up and kind of sit in the bunker. And um, and I'll show you in the break. I have a video of you know hitting a bunker shot with an alligator. It's it's uh it's interesting. So you might see and you'll see I'm sure on Twitter because the alligators will get out, especially this time of year. As I mentioned with UL, like it's mating season. Alligators like to be out and out and about this time of year. So you'll get to see a couple of them walking around. That's always fun. Never been bit or anything like that, but uh, that that wouldn't be fun. No, that 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 would not be fun. Because no. then, then you'd be on one of those shows like I was prey. Yeah, but tri- Tripod's a big boy, I'll tell you that. I mean, if you, he's a big boy. <laughs> we got to take a time out when we return here on RP3 Company. We'll update the poll question of the day. We'll get to the Astros as well as some news involving the Oakland Athletics. It looks like they are on the move to Vegas. We'll share that with you next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, the Houston Astros got themselves a win yesterday against those Toronto Blue Jays. That's right. The defending World Series champs take down the Blue Jays easily 8-1. to one. Garcia was dominant. Has he been the team's best pitcher to start the season? It sure does feel that way. He's actually been kind of roughed up until last night. He's been very inconsistent, I would say. He's had a couple good outings, but a couple not so good outings. Kind of like this show. Very good comparison, yeah. <laughs> well, who was I? Oh, I was thinking of Christian Javier. There we go. Yeah, I mean, well, we you've go. had Javier and Urquidy both have pretty good start. Then Urquidy wasn't very good. Then Jose had the rough, yeah. The rough so they've out. all kind of taken their turns here. Hunter Brown's you know, maybe been the most consistent of any of them. But, now, Framber... The funny thing about Framber is he hasn't had his best stuff, but yet he's put up, he's he's gotten him through innings, which is just how good he is. Correct. He's pushing through being okay. Yes, Garcia gets his first win of the season. That, there we go. Seven strong innings, no earned runs, nine Ks, only one walk. He delivered the goods yesterday for the Houston Astros as they get to 9-10 and 10 overall on the season. And they win the series against the Blue Jays, taking two of three. Myers, 
continues to contribute despite the Houston Astros fan base hating him. <laughs> they really don't like old Jake Myers, but he just goes out there and he's been contributing for the team. So I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe he's feeding off the hatred from the fan base. Uh, Abreu singled and brought in a run as well yesterday in the eighth inning. Tucker brought in a run in the eighth, and then Pena capped that great eighth inning for the Strohs where they scored six runs in the eighth as he hit a home run, three-run blast, which he, let's be honest, kind of desperately needed because he has been on the absolute struggle bus for the season. Dubon, Bregman, both got hits as well. Abreu Tucker, two hits. Pena with the three-run blast. And even Jake Myers driving in runs. 8-1 victory for the Strohs. And look, you look at it now and, and look, Toronto's a good team. We expect the Blue Jays to be in the mix for the wild card. Still early in the season. Tampa is really, they got a four and a half game lead on both the Yankees and the Baltimore Orioles. Who had the Orioles being above 500 at this point of the season. And the Blue Jays are a little bit struggling, 11 and 8. And Boston is below 500. The Red Sox are kind of a mess. But the Astros are 9-10. and 10. That's third in the AL West, but it's still early. They're only a half game behind the Los Angeles Angels, a.k.a. the little fighting MVPs, as Foot likes to call them. And then the Rangers are three and a half games up on the Astros as it stands right now. Uh, by the way, the Rangers, even with all their injuries, they're 8-2 and two in their last 10. They've won four straight. Yeah, the offense for them is kind of going crazy, even without a couple of key pieces. So um, that's something to monitor. You and I have talked about this. The AL West is going to be a bear. It's going to be tougher than people think. I still like the Astros to win the division. Yeah. But it's not going to be easy. I think, yeah, it's, going to I, be, I think it's going to be a challenge. Right. And I, and I think this Astros team, like, I, I've heard a lot of people, like, and Kevin's even said, like, the mo- this is the most loaded roster that they've ever had, even, you know, more so than some of the others. I get what he's saying, too, because, like, and the other thing is, especially if Luis Garcia looks like he did last night, like, the rotation's literally six, seven deep, so I get that. But I do think there's some, like, underwhelming aspects of this roster right now and and I think like asking the bullpen to be as good as they were last year is difficult so like I see this team more around 90 95 wins I don't I don't think they're a 100 win team but I still think that's enough to win the division I don't think Texas is gonna take that next step just yet and I don't think Seattle is and I I don't really think the Angels are either um so I think 90 I think 95 games definitely wins you the division. That would be my my. We both like the Strohs to still win the division, but we also both pick two teams from the West to be wildcard teams. Right, right, and I think that's the crazy. Like I think four, you have four pretty good teams, and yeah. and maybe one great team in the Astros, maybe two with the Rangers, but not like again. I don't think the Astros are going to be the number one seed. Like at the, and, and if you're no. you're looking way far ahead, but I would I would start to kind of think maybe get top two seed to get that by. Um, is important, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's not a, a done deal. Well, you'll have two in playing three, so you only have to be yeah. in the top three. But I don't know. It's 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 difficult. Yeah, Rangers three game lead on the Angels, three and a half game lead on the Strohs, four and a half game lead on the Mariners, and then 
There's Oakland at the very bottom, 3-16. and 16. Speaking of the A's, the Las Vegas Review-Journal has a story about this. They were first on this. The Oakland Athletics have zeroed in on Southern Nevada, signing a binding purchase agreement for land just west of the Las Vegas Strip where a major league ballpark could be constructed. So they have entered a binding purchase agreement for a spot right on the other side of the strip to build a Major League Baseball ballpark. And what's crazy about this is that in the span of 10 years, we're going to have all these professional sports franchises in a city where all those leagues not only never wanted to have events there, never wanted to allow teams to go there, never even wanted to allow their players to visit. And now it's going to be a sports city Goliath. Got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, it's time for us to talk with Eric Sherman. He is... Oh, we got a phone call. There we go. Let's go out to the hotline. Welcome on Jamie to the show. Jamie, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Third. How are you? I'm doing great, bud. I got about a minute, but it's yours. Uh, I just wanted to go on the poll question of the day, and uh, I hear that the draft is happening, right? Yeah, yes, a week from today, bud. Yeah, great. Okay, cool. It's hockey uh, playoff season right now, and uh, no, so Jamie. you got some great teams playing in the playoffs. No, Jamie. Um, no, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jamie. No, no, Jamie. <laughs> I don't have time for hockey. That's a sad day. No, I'm excited about the football draft, but I'm more excited about hockey playoffs and baseball. So uh, uh, it's one of those things I'll catch a little bit here and there, but I'll be watching the the playoffs for hockey and uh, watching a couple baseball games too. So anyway, hope you guys have a great day. Thank you, brother. Feel free to call in the future to give us updates about the NHL playoffs. I'm always (laughs) told that they're great and people should watch them. I just don't have time. So I'm I'm going (laughs) to lean on Jamie, a.k.a. Mr. Green, for our – Hockey insight. No problem. I'll call you guys later. Y'all have a good one. See you, bud. <laughs> this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette. 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana sports station. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about Otani. He is the star of baseball, the biggest star of baseball. He has become a cultural phenomenon. Well, 40 years ago, there was another foreign-born player, another foreign-born pitcher that arrived on the scene, took over the world of baseball, helped his team win a World Series championship, and became a pop culture icon in the process. And of course, I'm talking about Fernando Venezuela. Well, his rise to fame and prominence is documented in the great new book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And joining us now to talk about it is the man who wrote the book, Eric Sherman. Eric, good morning to you, brother. Welcome to the show. How are you? 
<laughs> well, it's a pleasure speaking with you, Raymond. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm excited to talk about this book. And that's a lot for me to say because I grew up an Atlanta Braves fan, and for some reason we shared a division with the Dodgers. So I was never all that fond of them. But your book makes me want to talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers. So that in itself is an achievement, brother. <laughs> you know, I always wondered how Atlanta was in the Western Division. Um, it just never made sense to me. Yeah, it, it, j- just like the Dallas Cowboys are in the NFC East. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, well, great, great geography for professional sports leagues. This book is fascinating because we're talking 40 years later, Eric, and Fernando is still as relevant as he was back then. It's still a household name, and people still remember this quiet, chubby kid from Mexico that just came in and took over the Dodgers and took over Major League Baseball in the country. It is something that I still remember crystal clear today as it was 40 years ago. Well, what's fascinating about it, and I write about this in the book, it's it's how it's just like what you just said, uh, Raymond. He is as big today as he was in 1981 uh, in the big Fernando Mania frenzy uh, that just sw- swept not just L.A. But the, but the entire country and baseball world. And um, you go to Dodger Stadium today, and 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 I do. Uh, yeah, I'm based in New York, but in researching and working on this book, I spent a lot of time at Dodger Stadium. I am completely honest when I make this statement. You will see more Fernando jerseys, more number 34s, than you will a Mookie Betts jersey. Um, He's that popular. And not just by people like us that saw him pitch, but, but kids. You know, kids that never saw him play, who were born well after he retired, but um, kids who were told the story by their by their parents or grandparents about um, how he just came in and just um, really changed baseball. Um, you know, the subtitle um, is uh, Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. A part of the meaning on the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers is that pre-Fernando, you might have 5 to 8% uh, Mexican-Americans and Latinos that attended Dodger games. Today, that figure, uh, well, so after Fernando Mania began, that figure shot up to at least 50%, and it still sits there today. Um, so in my mind, and through many experts that I spoke to um, in the media and who played with them, who have been involved in the game forever, they believe, as do I, that Fernando had the biggest impact in bringing more new fans to the game than any player that ever lived, in, in, including Jackie Robinson, including Babe Ruth. It's not an overstatement to say that. The other thing that you tackle in the book and, and do so in an extremely delicate, nuanced, but very honest manner is the relationship between Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles and the Dodgers prior to Fernando's arrival. Well, first off, I would say... Uh, Cesar Chavez, one of the uh, most noble human beings who's ever walked the earth, a civil rights leader in the 60s and 70s. Um, He fought for rights primarily 
for the farm workers um, out in California who were uh, predominantly uh, Mexican-American and Mexicans. Um, he never stepped foot in Dodger Stadium. Wouldn't do it. Um, so why? Why would someone like that who lives in Southern California not attend a Dodger game? Well, the real story of Fernando Mania doesn't start in 1981. It doesn't start uh, when he was born in 1960. The story of Fernando really be- began 10 years before he was born, around 1950-51. That's when the city of Los Angeles, uh, through eminent domain, uh, came up with the idea of creating affordable housing units um, on Chavez Ravine, where at the time there were three Mexican-American neighborhoods. Um, so these residents of Chavez Ravine um, were being displaced. They, they were being forced to move, forced to sell their, their homes, in most cases 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, Mexican-Americans were marginalized then, just like they largely are today. It's, it's, a, it's a sad story. So the affordable housing project um, was defeated with the dawn of the Red Scare. Um, and what, what, what that was, um, that came, came, came about in the early 50s um, when um, something like affordable housing would have been deemed socialist at best and maybe even communist. Um, so that nixed the pro- project. So now the city of Los Angeles is stuck with uh, 300 acres of property. Uh, they didn't know what to do, do with. And you still had Mexican-Americans living on that property thinking, well, okay, so there's no um, affordable housing pro- project. We're in the clear. Well, that was not the intention of the city. So the Dodgers, they couldn't um, build out in Ebbets Field. It only seated 20,000, 28,000. It was right in the middle of Brooklyn. Um, couldn't move to Queens. Um, Robert Moses, the city planner, was very inflexible in trying to help the Dodgers out. Uh, city of Los Angeles wooed the Dodgers to move out to L.A. with this beautiful piece of property where they could build a 56,000-seat stadium with plenty of parking right by uh, what would be the freeway entrance. Um, and the rest of the Me- Mexican-Americans, some of them were literally physically dragged from their homes and watched as their homes were bulldozed to the ground um, so Dodger Stadium could be built. So you can imagine, <laughs> uh, Raymond, and I know that you know this story, but, I mean, you can imagine uh, the visual that that portrayed not just in L.A. but around the country, um, and it was pointed right at the Mexican-American community. So... Fernando comes along in 1981. He's the, the Mexican Sandy Koufax the Dodgers have been trying to find for 20 years, uh, really ever since they moved uh, out to Chavez Ravine. And, uh, and they found him. And that drew the fa- fans in, and the Dodgers already had Spanish-speaking broadcasters. Um, so they were ready. And the savior, <laughs> Fernando Valenzuela, came along and... He brought the fans out, and he still does. 
We're talking with Eric Sherman, his new book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He joins us now here on RP3 and Company. What were the expectations, though, during your research? I'm sure you came across this for what Fernando could do. I mean, there's no way to expect this guy to be the Cy Young Award winner, the Rookie of the Year, and help the team win the World Series, especially when he only arrived in the U.S. two years prior. What did the Dodgers think they had? They thought they had um, a guy that could come out of the bullpen, which he had uh, in September. In September of 1980, uh, the Dodgers were right in the thick of the pennant race. In fact, uh, they played a 163rd game, an extra game, a one-game playoff against the Houston Astros. And Fernando was a big part of that um, as a reliever. Uh, but he wasn't closing games. He would come in and, like, the seventh or eighth inning, or if it was an extra inning game, he'd come in in you know the tenth or eleventh inning, and um, so he was he didn't give up a run. Um, I think he pitched seventeen shutout innings in the fall of nineteen eighty. But because of how he was used, it was sort of under the radar. And so when he reported to camp in eighty one, you know he was still kind of in the witness protection program like no nobody knew what the dodgers really had um and so uh two of their starting pitchers um jerry rice and bert hooten couldn't pitch because of injuries uh and their two other starters had just pitched in an exhibition game uh or a couple of exhibition games against the angels just prior to opening day so because of the injury to jerry rice uh, they marched out this kid making his first professional start. Um, and he shut out the Houston Astros on opening day. Um, and it was the beginning of the greatest start of any pitcher's career in the history of the game. Um, I mean, he was almost unhittable uh, for the first half of that, that season. Um, six shutouts, um, you know, he had a couple of games where he only gave up a run. I mean, just remarkable. And he was hitting. He was hitting over 450. Um, so he was unreal. I mean, he was like Otani. I'm not going to say Otani on steroids, but I'm just going to say he was like Otani on his best day every day. How did Fernando handle that pressure? And how much did his skipper, Tommy Lasorda, help with that? Well, that's a great question uh, because uh, I actually dedicate an entire chapter to Tommy Lasorda in this book because of the impact and influence that he had on Fernando. Uh, Fernando had some father figures, um, some guardian angels around him because he was, and still is today, uh, extremely shy and private and Back when he was 20 years old, a part of that stemmed from the fact that he really didn't speak any English at all. And when he would try to learn, uh, there were some embarrassing moments, which I talk about in, in the book. So he um, um, he had Jaime Harin, um, who was his translator. And Jaime had been the Dodgers Spanish language broadcaster uh, for over 20 years at that point. Um, but really nobody really knew about him outside of LA and now he's the tra- translator uh for Fernando um after games during press conferences and Jaime Harin becomes a national celebrity 
Um, and he also looked over for uh, Fernando, like I said, like a father figure. Uh, Mike Brito, the scout that signed him, uh, actually um, had Fernando live at his home, um, you know, be- because Fernando never went out. Um, on, on the road, he'd stay in his hotel room for the most part, um, watching cartoons and having room service. And then there was Tommy Lasorda. And Tommy, um, as any astute baseball fan knows, uh, was one of the most gregarious characters in the history of the game, uh, who never saw a camera he didn't like. Um, Hollywood absolutely suited Tommy Lasorda to a T. And so Tommy wasn't afraid, you know, to uh, pose for photos wearing a sombrero with Fernando, and he wasn't afraid um, to do um, press co- conferences with him. And, and uh, you know, Tommy knew a little bit of Spanish, too, which helped a lot. Um, but sometimes <laughs> Fernando would have Tommy translate what he was saying, and instead of saying, uh, yeah, you know, I, I got tired around the ninth inning, Tommy would say, um, you know, I can't thank uh, the good Lord enough for making time to sort of my, my manager. Um, so the translations often didn't come out exactly right when Tommy was involved. <laughs> the book is Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's in bookstores now, also available to buy online. Eric, thank you so much for your time, brother. Best of luck with the book. I can't wait to finish reading it, and I hope you have a tremendous baseball season, and I hope your next trip out to L.A. is a good one, my friend. Thank you. Take care. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day. The NFL draft starts one week from today. How are you feeling? Excited, let's go. 67% of you have voted that way. The NFL is the dominant Goliath when it comes to the sports world. 15% of you say you're in baseball mode. You don't got time for the NFL draft. 10% of you say do not really care much. 8% of you say didn't realize, but cool. JPK, the OD, says no association or league has done a better job over the last 20 years than the NFL at making their offseason relevant and highly watchable. I both love them and hate them for it. That being said, let's go. Hashtag NFL year round. B-Rad says in baseball mode, but excited about the draft and very excited that YouTube TV is offering $100 off on NFL Sunday ticket if you sign up by June 6th. Combined with the new multi-view mode, football season is going to be even more fun this year. Ralph says, looking forward to it, especially when the clown mispronounces countless names and after having a year to prepare and the crowd boos him and boos him and boos him. Ton on Twitter says, baseball mode, football draft, good, cool. Saints will shock everyone. Foot will blow gasket. D'Lo will brag about getting his picks right. Miguez and Mesh will second guess their competence as analysts. I'll hear about it here. Go Strohs. Darren says, looking to see if the Jets get A-Rod. I'm starting to think we should have went after Lamar. Yeah, that process is dragging its feet, isn't it? 
almost feels like Aaron Rodgers one day is going to go, I'm done with football. It's strange. It's really, and I like, I don't know. It's funny that people aren't really talking about it right now. I guess you're just sick of talking about it, but it is strange. It's died. It's died down. That's going to do it for hour number two. Keep those votes coming, though, for the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll share them throughout today's show. Hour number three, we'll kick it off with Les East of CrescentCitySports.com. That's next, right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, 8.03, which means the final hour has arrived of RP3 and company, but don't be sad. Don't be filled with despair. We still got greatness for the final hour. Gabe Cormier, the head baseball coach of the Brobridge Tigers. They're gearing up for the playoffs. We'll talk with the skipper of one of the best baseball programs in Acadiana, traditionally. That's coming up half an hour from right now. Still go vote on our poll question of the day. We're a week out from the NFL draft. How do you feel about it? Are you excited about it? Can you not wait? Or do you not care? We want to hear from you. Go vote on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. Busy, busy day. And Saints gearing up to try to find the missing pieces that they need via the draft. The Pelicans searching for answers. To talk about it all is the man who covers both of those franchises for CrescentCitySports.com. Our good friend Les East joins us now. Les, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Raymond. How are you? I'm doing good, bud. Are you going to squeeze in some Zurich Classic action on the uh, on your agenda for this week? I mean, you're a very busy man, but are you going to go over to Avondale and uh, cover the golf tournament too? I am going to be there, uh, certainly on the weekend. I won't be able to make it today, and tomorrow uh, is iffy, just as the weather is. But I'll definitely be there Saturday and Sunday. My man, my man. I went last year for the first time. I had a blast. Our guy Dawson will be there this weekend, so you may run into him. So, you know, if he gets a little out of hand, Les, I expect you as a veteran journalist and as a close personal friend to, you know, maybe keep the youngster in check if he gets out out of line a little bit. Okay. Well, I'll call a marshal if I need to, but I don't think that will be necessary. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it's going to be necessary. <laughs> it's not going to be necessary at all. All right, let's talk about the draft. It's only a week away. Les, has your idea or your thought process, rather, of how the Saints are going to attack the draft changed now that we're just a week out? No, um, because there haven't haven't been any major acquisitions recently that would uh, change their list of priorities. And picking at 29th, it's impossible to project who's going to be available there. So, you know, I know there are going to be a million mock drafts out there and a lot of speculation, but really uh, the Saints are trying to come up with a bullpen of five or six guys that they think are most likely to be there at 29. And 
presumably one of those guys will be the guy they'll wind up with, but there's no um, no new guidance on who that might be because they're just picking too far down in the pecking order to be able to speculate uh, with any kind of uh, certainty. Speaking of that, though, you know Mickey. He loves to trade up. It's like it's got... As my dad would say, you got that money's burning a hole in your back pocket, and that's how he he feels with first round draft picks. He loves trading up in the draft. What would you put the percentage being that the Saints come a week from tonight are going to be trading up in the first round? Well, it, it's always a possibility. Uh, I, you know, I would say probably less than fifty fifty, but certainly possible. But you know, usually what happens when they make those trades is they've identified somebody that they really like, but they're not sure that he's going to be there when they pick. And then they get within five or six or eight or nine picks of their selection, and the person is starting to fall, and they realize they have a chance to get him, but they don't think they're going to last all the way to their pick. And so they get on the phones and they start trying to make a deal that they like to get in a position to get that player. And uh, it's certainly possible that that could happen again this year, but there's no way of uh, anticipating that until, you know, we're, we're 10 or 15 picks into the draft next Thursday. And then if the planets start to align, uh, Mickey will get on the phone and he always has, he always does his homework. So he's going to have some, teams in mind that he's probably had preliminary contact with that he knows that if he wants to pull the trigger that they have uh, uh, the parameters of a potential deal in place and uh, if things fall properly he can get on the phone and make the deal deal happen pretty quickly. Les, I hear these phrases used all the time when it comes to Saints. You know, they usually have five or six guys, you just mentioned it, that they really like, that are their guys. They, they, they almost ignore everyone else. They, they just focus on their guys. And then I always hear these terms thrown around, especially since Jeff Ireland has been part of the front office with the RAS scores and everything like that, that there's the Saints prototypical prospect. What is that? What does that mean? What, what, what are some of the traits that the Saints, Mickey Loomis, Jeff Ireland and company – always look for when they're drafting guys? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, uh, certainly they have intangibles and character um, factors that, that they, they put in place because they, they, they're big, like most teams are, on, on the, the proverbial culture. They want to bring in guys that are dependable uh, guys because of the character that they possess, people that you can expect to be coachable and to put in the work necessary to develop into the type of player they expect and also to stay out of trouble off the field, presumably. So uh, that's certainly going to be a big factor in, in every player that they evaluate. Some players will probably be off their board entirely if they have red flags because of behavioral problems in college. Uh, but from a football standpoint, I'll, I'll just the, probably the easiest example to give would be defensive end. You know, and uh, some mock drafts speculate that the Saints will take one of these speedy defensive end pass rushers. Well, that's not a Saints prototype. 
The Saints prototype is the tall, lengthy, uh, athletic defensive end, and it hasn't worked out great so far with Marcus Davenport or Peyton Turner. But those are prototypes of the defensive ends that they like that might be different from what some other teams have in mind for for defensive ends. So and those have, guys, less those guys are usually it, built a certain way as well. They're like, they're like six foot three, six foot four, two hundred and seventy pounds roughly, right? That's usually the body type they like too. Yeah, they tend to like a taller. Uh, defensive ends com- compared to what maybe some other teams like. And then that's true at almost every position. They like tall, wide receivers, generally speaking. And, uh, you know, they, they offensive linemen, interior linemen, they like a certain type, and tackles they like a certain type. But, you know, a lot of this was dictated by Sean Payton. It may not be exactly the same with uh, Dennis Allen. He only has one draft. Uh, since he's been head coach. I'm not sure if they've tweaked that a little bit, but Jeff Ireland certainly is a big part of that. So they they know how they want to play on offense. They know how they want to play on defense, and that includes uh, certain physical traits for players at each position. And so they've come up with a prototype of, generally speaking, what they like uh, at uh, each position, and they look for guys who fit that prototype because they believe that that will enable them to play the best in the type of system that they choose to play. That being said, in your expert opinion, someone who covers this team day in, day out, when they're done with their first two rounds, their first round pick and their second round pick at 29 and 40 and let's say they just stay there for this for this conversation what do you think they're going to be drafting what type of play, what type of positions rather do you think they are going to be drafting next week well you know that i got to throw in the caveat that that's going to be dictated by by who's on the board i think they they generally will stick with the the highest guy on their board or the highest guys they may have two or three guys right that that are essentially rated the same and then the position may make the difference but you know if i had to guess i would say an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman with with defensive lineman being first uh not necessarily the first pick but the one that that's most likely uh, to come off the board because that's their biggest need right now. I think probably a defensive tackle more than defensive end. And that's been their MO over the years. They, they pick a lot of linemen high and they value linemen as they should. And um, so I think defensive line is, is very likely to be a first or second round pick. Offensive line, I think, is a possibility. But I also think tight end and running back would be possibilities, as would defensive back. So, and I don't know that there's any position other than maybe quarterback with the signing of Derek Carr that I would rule out in the first two rounds. And kickers, I guess. So, you would be surprised because typically they take D line, O line, DB, and wide receiver in the first two rounds. That's what they've typically done since Mickey's been in charge. And that, that's kind of their bread and butter. Would the biggest surprise for you, Les, if they took a tight end in the round in the first round? No, that would not be a big surprise. Uh it depends on the value that's there, but you know, that's a, a position that that probably needs to be upgraded 
uh, in the passing game. And with Derek Carr, I think they have, they have big expectations for the passing game next year. They, you know, last season they said that they were making Taysom Hill uh, a full-time tight end. Well, that didn't really work out. He wound up playing as much quarterback as ever. And as the uh, tight end, I think he, he caught just about the fewest passes he's ever caught as a Saint. So I don't know that his role as a tight end is going to be all that significant, at least in, uh, in the passing game. And uh, Jawan Johnson, they re-signed. He's a developing player who, who's valuable. But I don't think they're they're totally satisfied with what they have at that position. And there are some tight ends, uh, including the guy at Georgia, who are thought to be of uh, late first-round quality. So it would not be shocking to me if that first-round pick wound up being a tight end or, or second round for that matter. But typically, and I, I don't look, I think this tight end class is very good, but typically they address tight end through free agency, Shockey, uh, Benjamin Watson, uh, you know, even Jimmy Graham was not a first round pick. So they typically don't invest first round or second round picks into the tight end position. They usually try to address it in other realms. Yeah, and I think that would be a route that they would certainly be be willing to go. But it it always comes down to the individual situation. They may have an opportunity at tight end that's better than any opportunity they've had at tight end in the draft previously, and they'll grab it. And if they don't have a great opportunity, they'll be fine going and seeing if they can add a veteran through free agency. So, you know, just because there's a pattern that shows up, that doesn't necessarily mean that that pattern has to continue because every draft, every round, every pick has to be viewed within the context of what the needs are at that moment and what the availability of players is at that moment for the particular spot they're in. Yeah, highest rated tight ends they've taken it was Jimmy Graham. He was a third rounder, and of course they took Adam Troutman in the third round as well back in 2020, and he hasn't necessarily worked out. Let's switch over to the Pelicans, and I'll get you out of here with this. Can this weird relationship between David Griffin and the front office and Zion Williamson, the face of the franchise, can it really work? Can it be fixed to the point where it actually benefits the franchise and both the player and the franchise can be on the same page? Well, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I don't think Zion Williamson knows. I don't think David Griffin knows. I think they're they're going to be working, continue to work toward making that happen. And I think the biggest obstacle to that has been the injuries to Zion Williamson and the the organization's determination to be uh, cautious with his return and with his frustration at not being able to play more and uh, that that's made it difficult for them to nurture that relationship and if he continues to be hurt more often than he's not hurt that's going to continue to be an obstacle I do think this will be the biggest year uh, to date I think next season will be the most important season to date for his future in New Orleans the max deal kicks in this coming season 
Uh, it's gotten to the point now. He played, I believe, 29 games this year after playing zero games last year. He's played well under 50% of the games in four years. You know, it's sooner or later. He's going to turn 23 during the summer, but still, sooner or later, you have to know whether or not you're going to be able to count on this guy for at least half a season and hopefully more. And if they have yet another season where that doesn't happen, then you know, I think they got to take a, a, a different look at whether or not this is going to work long term or not. But I, I think everything, every problem that there is with the Zion relationship with the uh, organization, everything is complicated by the lack of health. At, at the beginning of this season, up until January 2nd, when he pulled the hamstring in Philadelphia, he was healthy. For the most part, he had missed a few games, but he was healthy. He was playing great. They were playing great. And then he got hurt again, and he never came back. And then all of a sudden, things get complicated. So uh, if he's able to get healthy, I think a lot of all that other stuff organically goes away. Les, appreciate your time and your insight as always, brother. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the Zurich Classic this weekend, my friend. We'll talk to you next Thursday, bud. Thanks, Raymond. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are two types of sports reporters. Those who are respected for their ability at building relationships with coaches and players. And here's our game plan. Then there are those whose method of reporting is getting hammered with a college football team at Pat O's. You guess which one RP3 is. Back to more RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day. NFL draft starts one week from today. How are you feeling? 63% of you are excited let's go 18 percent say you're in baseball mode don't got time for the draft 12 percent say do not really care all that much and seven percent of you say you didn't realize but hey hey that's cool whatever cool great awesome salty steve says i love to see the draft experts scratch their heads as the draft goes every direction but the one they predicted saints are the best at doing this but they need a strong draft more than ever that means kids that can contribute on rookie deals right away and they do do a nice job of that of finding guys that can do that john paul cajun daddy says football is good football's fun anything football related is awesome because football is good xfl is football it is good usfl is football it is good so yes the nfl draft let's go and the notorious dub says always ready for mega mind's cousin and of course he's talking about mel kuyper keep those votes coming keep those comments coming on our poll question of the day we are having a discussion because Les opened up the door that he that it wouldn't stun him if they did take a tight end with the, the first two rounds. They haven't taken a first they haven't taken a tight end in the first or second round since 1998. Okay? Which last time I checked, that's been a minute. That was old Cam Cleland, by the way, tied in out of Washington with the number 40 overall pick in the 1998 NFL draft. I don't think Look, and Dawson and I were talking about this. 
The tight end position is boom or bust because it's so tough for guys to make the adjustment to the NFL at tight end and at wide receiver. And tight end more so than wide receiver, in my, in my opinion, because they have to learn to do both catch passes and learn how to run block. You know, you look at the Saints who took Adam Troutman. This was a guy who was a very good pass catcher in college and didn't know how to run block. The Saints taught him how to run block, but then he forgot how to catch the football. We're still waiting on him to break through, and this that hasn't happened. Uh, the undrafted guy who was a wide receiver that they converted into a tight end is a better pass-catching tight end than the guy they drafted in the third round. There's your boom and bust right there. You're really high on one particular tight end. Correct. The kid out of Notre Dame. I like Mayer. Six foot five, 250 pounds. He has all the tools. You and I differ in this regard that is he really that much better than say Musgrave out of Oregon State, who's projected to be a second round pick, six foot six, two hundred fifty one pounds. Darnell Washington, who is a project, he's athletically gifted, six foot seven, two hundred seventy two pounds, moves like no one else. It's all about potential, but he couldn't even get on the field at Georgia. It's, so, so, or Sam Laporta, the big fella out of Iowa. Like, I think tight end is a need. I think they're going to address it with the draft. But are you going to spend a first-round pick on a guy that maybe won't contribute in year number one? And if you're Dennis Allen, you probably need to you know, win now. Do you, do you draft a guy that's a project? There's two things about that, though. Number one, I don't, I don't consider all first-round picks to be created equal. And I think people, like, you see a one next to it, so you go, it's a first-round pick. 29 is not the same as the 10th pick in the draft or the third pick in the draft or the 15th pick in the draft. And the Saints have two, 29 and 40 is essentially two picks in the same value range. So you could, you could make the argument that once you get past the top 15 or you're so, getting, yeah. those guys in the back half of the first round and probably the first 20 picks, I would say, in the second round are pretty much on even playing field. And we've had our guy Andrew Jujon talk about this. If you're not going to be picking in the top 15, you're not going to get the top players at the high-value, high-paying positions. But you can get the best players in the draft at other position, at peripheral positions. And Michael Mayer, in my opinion, is that at tight end. I also I know the boomer bust reputation around tight ends, and I understand it because a lot of them don't pan out. I think part of that has to do also with the offense they go to and the coaches they go to. But since 2017, we look at the tight ends that well, were taken in the first round. Well, you can make that argument with any position. Right, and we, we take the tight ends that were taken in the first round 2017. O.J. Howard, a guy who's battled injury but has been a productive player throughout his career at times. Um, I don't think that's a bust pick. Evan Ingram, another one. He had a couple of great seasons, and it didn't. He, he's had injuries as well. And again, injuries, to me, don't tell you whether a player's a bust or not. David Njoku was the last player picked in the first round in that draft. Another guy who's shown flashes throughout his career, but he's been in a dysfunctional Cleveland organization for much of his career. In 2018, the only guy taken was Hayden Hurst, who's become a good player. He's certainly not valued at maybe what a first-round pick was spent on him but hasn't been a what I would call bust in the league. 2019, there's only two. TJ Hawkinson's turned into a very good player in the NFL. In the NFL, uh, And then Noah Fant, who, again, I don't think the jury's out on Noah Fant. Like, I think he's had a decent career, and he's got a chance to still be a good player. But you're using words like decent, good, well, because not it's a being, bust. Because it's being titled boom or bust, I think 
Michael Mayer is a home run. I but I'm saying even the the floor isn't as low as people would maybe suggest. Like the floor for a quarterback that's taken in the first round that doesn't work out is he's looking for a job in three years, or he's a third string quarterback, or he's a backup on a roster that you don't hear about anymore. But aren't some of those guys already on their second teams? Yeah, but not not Howard, because Hawkinson. of Hawkinson. I think. Every single player I listed is going to be starting in the National Football League at tight end this year. And so that's my point is the floor isn't as low. I don't think Michael Mayer is going to be a floor pick. But I'm saying if he's there at 29, I think the ceiling is enormous and the floor isn't as low as people would think it is. So you would rather take a guy with your first round pick over defensive line or offensive line, which are foundation pieces that if you don't get it right across the line of scrimmage, it doesn't matter what, what, what skill guys you have. That guy, yes. Not any guy. That guy. That's the guy I'm talking about. Um, offensive line, yeah, no, look, and that's my other point, is you have another pick, 11 picks later. But I think Mayer's value at 29, again, listen, I don't think he's going to be there at 29, so I think this whole conversation is moot. But I think if he's there at 29, you take him, and at 40, you can evaluate some of the other positions you were going to take anyway. I don't think you're going to get a guy at 29 on the defensive line that's that much better than a guy you got at 40, I think Mayer might be that much better than the other tight ends. But that's just my opinion, and I don't work for the Saints, so I won't have a say. What if B.J. Robinson's there at 29? Bijan mm-hmm. from Texas? I mean, well, that's if they're both there, then that's a tough decision, and, and, and you'll have to that's reevaluate. That's why I'm asking you, what would you do? Would you still go with the tight end, or would you go with possibly a generational running back? Yeah, I think I'd, 20, I think uh. I'd probably have to go running back there and that if those guys are both there. I agree with you. I don't think either one of those guys is going to be there at 29. I think they're both going to be gone by that time. But I still think the Saints could get themselves a good tight end in the second round, Musgrave or Laporta or even Darnell Washington. So, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they go it. They haven't selected a tight end in the first two rounds since 1998. I guess my lasting point I'll, I'll say about it is the pick of Michael Mayer has nothing to do with picking a tight end, but to me it has to do with if he's at in there at that spot, I think he's the best player available on the board. I'm not saying I – don't, I don't feel a pressure to get a tight If you don't get Mayer, honestly, I don't worry about any of the second-round tight ends because I don't see them as highly. But on my draft board, I would have Mayer high enough to where if he was there at 29 – it would be the guy to take because he's the best player available. That's that's why I like that okay. specific player, not the tight end position in general. And you and you you don't necessarily love all things Notre Dame. No, not a not a Notre Dame. Okay, just no. just checking, just checking. We'll see, we'll see. It'll be interesting. I don't personally think Mayer is going to be there. I just, I, I think he's going to go in the top eighteen. If I had to guess. I think that's where he's going to go. I'd be surprised if he even falls into the 20s. Good stuff there. Keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we're going to talk high school baseball with Gabe Cormier, Brobridge High Baseball Coach. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, man, it's a busy, busy, busy day in the world of sports. Zurich Classic has officially teed off. Give you some 
first round news there from the only PGA Tour stop down in New Orleans. Murray and Brian, Naismith and Moore are your current leaders at four under. Ryder Redman is at three under, and Ogilvy and Stadler at two under. So lots of activity already for the first round of Dessert Classic down outside of New Orleans. The Astros got a win last night to take the series from the Toronto Blue Jays. Big deal. Jeremy Pena got himself an absolute monster home run in the ball game as well. They got a great pitching performance from Garcia. Finally, he gets his first win. He had been on what we call the struggle bus for, well, more than a little while. He finally got something going last night. So they get the win. Big deal for them. They're now 9-10 overall on the season. And maybe they can start possibly, possibly turn a corner in that regard. Also, the Oakland Athletics. Looks like they're going to be sold. Looks like they're going to be moving, rather. And it looks like they're going to be going to Las Vegas. Reports are coming out that they have agreed in some sort of principle to develop a piece of property on the Las Vegas Strip, actually outside of the Vegas Strip. So it looks like the Oakland Athletics could be headed to Las Vegas, Vegas, which is, well, it's a little crazy to even think. And it's just crazy to think because I'm old enough to remember a time where you weren't even allowed to have your players go to Vegas. Like, that was never going to be a thing. And now we have going to have multiple franchises in Las Vegas that is absolutely crazy to me. Absolutely crazy to me. That that's the world we live in now where <laughs> we got an NFL franchise, right? We already have an NHL franchise, and now we're going to have a Major League Baseball franchise headed to Las Vegas. Who would have thought that? Not I. That's for sure. Right now, though, it's time for us to talk high school baseball. The playoffs have begun, or they're beginning this week, rather, here in the state of Louisiana. And it's time to talk to someone whose team is gearing up to hopefully make a deep postseason run. He's in his first season at the helm of the Bro Bridge Tigers after serving as an assistant coach for many years. Gabe Cormier joins us now. Coach, good morning to you, brother. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. So how does it feel? to be coaching a team in the playoffs, brother. Let's start there. Um, you know, it's it, 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 it was different for me this year. Um, I've been here 25 years, and I was an assistant to Kyle for 24 years. So um, being the head man is definitely a different experience for me. Um, kind of makes you appreciate the job that Kyle did for all those years. But the playoffs are an exciting time, and uh, – it's it's kind of I told the kids yesterday it's a different feeling when the playoffs are around. So so we're excited and we're excited to get started today. So, what's the big difference from being a longtime assistant coach 
to going to head coach. I mean, what's I mean, you you've been around the team, you know the game of baseball, you know how to coach the kids, you know how to develop them, you know how to prepare for road trips and everything like that. But what's the big difference going from longtime assistant coach to being the head man in charge? I guess the biggest uh obviously, you know, the all field stuff that I really didn't have to deal with fundraisers, things like that, concession workers, you know, things like that. But I think the biggest decision um, as far as on field is the actual decisions during the game, you know, when to pull a pitcher, um, different lineups, who's going to start today, who's going to come in. So things like that. Um, Kyle always always dealt with the pitchers, and I, I never had to make those decisions. So it, um, I think that's the biggest thing on the field, the decisions actually on the field. Um thing that I had to get used to this year a big adjustment for me is uh, another adjustment also kind of I don't know tweaking the dynamic between you and the players because a lot of times the head coach is viewed slightly differently than an assistant maybe sometimes the assistant is the guy that will pat the player on the back when they screw up after the head coach chews them out right it's (laughs) a lot of times that assistant coach is more like the uncle <laughs> than, you know, the, the strict dad. Is that also part of the adjustment? That's, that's a great question. Um, I kind of, I was, um, I, I thought I, I was really hard on the kids, you know, um, even as an assistant. And I think what um, I've tried to, and, and it's it's not perfect, um, is having a little more patience with them. Um so it's kind of the, the I see the roles are kind of reversed. I was one of those, you know, lack of a better term, bad cops. I was hard on the kids, and um, I got to kind of see the full picture now. A little more patience with them, a little more compassion with them, and um, I think that's that's been a big adjustment for me also. Um, and it's a it's a work in progress for me. <laughs> yeah, a, a softer, friendlier version. Is that what it yes. is, Coach? Yes, because I've I was. I want those hard, hard nose, and I think I've changed over the years. Some of, we actually have two of our ex players that are now coaching with us, and they kind of like, Coach, that's not how you were years ago. I said, No, I've kind of <laughs> adapted and I've learned. Doesn't I like always that. have to be that type of way. I like that. Coach, that's not how you treated me back in the day. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, obviously, to us, um, in fact, um, we have Tyler Thibodeau who played for us and, and played college ball. Um, and has been with us for two years. And then actually um, Kyle's son, Keegan, has helped us out this year too. And they've kind of like, man, you've, you've mellowed out a little bit. I said, yeah, over those years I've mellowed out. <laughs> Obviously a successful first season at the Hill, 19-9 and overall coach. And you guys get the number 12 seed in the uh, bracket for Division II non-select. Uh, when did you feel like your team – uh, took a turn you know what was the turning point of the season in your opinion I actually think this past Friday Ooh. Um, I think we played cap and Friday and I think that was the first time that we really played a complete game I really do um, and that's kind of I'm really excited to see how how we react tonight if we can repeat that performance um, we all we, we've maybe pitched well in one game but haven't swung the bats well uh, maybe one game we swung the bats well, but haven't pitched well. And I thought um, Friday 
Friday night against Kaplan, we did both real well. We're kind of, and I told the kids, we, for years and years and years, we've, um, we've tried to scratch one running in, and, and I thought, you know, my fault that we kind of got away from that early in the year, and we got back to that Friday night, and that's the type of ball, type of brand that Brobish High School is used to, you know, trying to scrap a run, an inning. Um, we ended up beating Kaplan 5-1. Obviously, we didn't get seven runs, but I thought we played hard. We had a great um, pitching performance, and um, I'm excited to see if we can repeat that performance again tonight. Coach, you take on number 21 seed Plaquemine in a best two out of three first-round series. The winner moves on to take on the five seed Pearl River, who received a first-round bye. What do you guys need to do starting tonight to be able to get the job done and move on to the next round of the playoffs? It's it's it's, it's a simple game. Throw strikes um, and get key base hits and limit your errors. Um, if we do that, I think we'll be fine. The games that we were successful this year, that's what we did. We, we threw strikes, um, we got key hits, and we limited our errors. And it's like I said, if we do that, um, I think we'll be fine. And if we're not, we, we gave our best effort. And that's all I can ask of the kids. Coach, appreciate your time. And just know, if you need to get that old version of yourself out there and, you know, uh, you know, uh, chew, chew out one of your guys and give them some tough love. I, 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 don't, I don't think anyone would complain about that, brother. <laughs> Thanks. I'll keep that in mind, and I appreciate it. Congrats on the season, Coach, and best of luck for the playoffs, brother. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great one. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, everyone is apparently part of the game family. Brother, 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 brother. Seriously, how many brothers does Ray have? Good morning to you, brother. Back to Ray and all of his brothers right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, man, what a show. So much going on. Poll question of the day. We'll get to those final results as well. I want to thank our guest, Eric Sherman, author. Great book about Fernando Mania. Even I enjoyed reading the book, and I used to hate the Dodgers back in the day. And I was not a big fan of Fernando because, well, he pitched really well against my Atlanta Braves, so why would I be a fan? But a great book there by Eric Sherman. Want to thank him. Want to thank Les East of CrescentCitySports.com, Talking Saints, Talking Little Pels. I want to thank Gabe Cormier, of course, the head baseball coach of the Brobridge Tigers. They are geared up for their playoff series tonight against Plaquemine. So want to thank them for joining us. Poll question of the day. The NFL draft starts one week from today. How are you feeling? Final results. 62% of you say excited. Let's go. 17% say in baseball mode. 14% say do not really care all that much. And 7% say didn't realize, but cool. That sounds like a very hipster way of answering that poll question. 
Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Thanks to all who commented as well. We appreciate you making us part of your morning commute to work or school. Final thoughts on this edition of RP3 and Company. Can you, Dawson Iserlo, convince Kevin Foote that the Saints should run to the podium to take the tight end from Notre Dame if he's still there at number 29? I'm not able to shift the mountains of earth, so no, that won't happen. Because <laughs> my man is not pro-taking tight end in the first round. That is not his cup of tea, if you know what I mean. I could see them maybe taking a guy in the second round. I the can com- see that. The comp for Michael Mayer, by the way, is Mark Andrews. Um, okay. That's, that's more the comp. That's the, the athletic scores and everything kind of line up. Mayer's actually a little better athlete than Mark Andrews was coming out. It's slight, but the numbers are a little better on the measurables. Um, so that's that's your comp there. And, I mean, look, I think if you got Mark Andrews at the 29th pick in the draft, you would be very happy with that. So There you go. Very happy with it. I like the kid out of Notre Dame. I just don't know if I like him exponentially more than the other guys. That's just me. That's just me. And you and I differ because I think you have to get more depth across the offensive line. I I just, I just, I, I worry. You'll get it. You'll just get it later. You're assuming that quality guys are still going to be there at four. I mean, you know, you're assuming that. That that that, well, that, but that that's my own. That, that, that's my rebuttal to your argument. You're like, well, you got to take the tight end if he's there, and you can just draft whatever you draft afterwards. Well, we're all but- assuming that the tight end's going to take so long to develop too. We're assuming everything, but that's kind of what the draft is. That's why I think it's funny that 250 thousand people are going to it because they don't. They're not going to know anything afterwards. Those people do. Those people have as much passion as you do about this tight end from Notre Dame. Probably not. Not enough of them. I don't think they do. That's going to do it for today's show. We'll be back on tomorrow, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.